0: Welcome to the Hirschfeld Century Podcast. I'm Katherine Eastman, the Archives Manager of the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, here by myself this week to introduce our newest podcast episode. We have a new online exhibition that is currently running on our website, alhirschfeldfoundation.org, and it's called Lost in the Stars... Black Theater Makers Drawn by Hirschfeld. We at the Al Hirschfeld Foundation believe that Black Lives Matter, Black Art Matters, and of course, Black Theater Matters. And so for this episode, we talked to Ben West. Ben is a musical theater artist and historian. He is a curator for the forthcoming Museum of Broadway in Times Square, and his book, The American Musical A Comprehensive History of the Art Form, will be published by Rutledge in 2022. He has worked in various capacities on Broadway off-Broadway, and regionally. His work has also been seen in Lincoln Center's American Songbook series. West has lectured and spoken at several institutions, including the Library of Congress, Yale, and the New York Public Library. He is a recipient of Lincoln Center's Martin E. Segal Award. Ben obviously has great passion for the American musical, as we all do here at the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, and I'm sure as all of our listeners do as well. Before we get into it, I want to please remind everybody to follow along in the show notes as we're talking about the drawings. Um, Important for this podcast as well, since it's our online exhibition you can go just straight to that link, which will be the first link in the show notes um, to the exhibition. And for the most part, if I remember correctly, you should be able to follow along pretty much in order. We don't go over all the drawings that are in the exhibition, so definitely check it out. And a final friendly reminder, don't forget to follow us on social media, Facebook, the Al Hirschfeld Foundation, Twitter and Instagram at Al Hirschfeld. Enjoy the show.
1: Today, we are talking to Ben West, a musical theater uh, historian who knows, who's literally rewriting the book today of uh, what the American musical is, um, was, is, and will be, perhaps. Um, But he's really filling in a lot of information uh, that has been missing in most standard narratives about the American musical. Uh, really shining a light also on the black uh, composers, performers, uh, designers, directors, who played a really crucial role in the development of the American musical, but have been written out of its history, as well as the women uh, and, and, and really all people of color. He, you know, uh, he, talked, he he is really helping us to understand all the non-white men who helped create the American musical. And I think that's going to be that's that's that is a needed readjustment of what we know about the American musical. So Ben, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast today.
2: Thanks for asking me. Uh,
1: we are going. This uh, podcast is devoted to our new online exhibition, Lost in the Stars: Black Theater Makers, drawn by Hirschfeld, and it covers a seventy-two year period. Um, as I write in the intro to the exhibition, Black actors, directors, composers, lyricists, playwrights, designers, and producers have long played a role in the American theater despite the inherent racism on the Great White Way. From the start in minstrel, in minstrel shows of the 19th century, Black artists have suffered underrepresentation both on and off stage in America. Uh, The title of this exhibition comes from the musical of the same name that explored the racial injustices of the 20th century South Africa apartheid system, but it can also serve as a metaphor of the black creative in a predominantly white theater world. Too often the contributions of black artists have been minimized or co-opted and the Al Hirschfeld Foundation wants to celebrate many of the black stars in all disciplines that make the American theater what it is today. So in this exhibition, we've brought together 26 images that cover 72 years of uh, theater history uh, and the black theater makers who made it. They are not the only drawings that Hirschfeld did. Um, Curating is as much about what you leave out as what you put in. And there are three times, at least uh, three times as many other drawings we could have used for this exhibition. We try to find ones that uh, you might be familiar with, as well as ones you've never heard about. And certainly, I think a lot of these performers and productions you might not have heard about. And that's why we have brought Ben on the show. Um, we're going to start at the beginning.
3: We're going to uh, start with one of my favorite drawings. If you listen, one to this, of your favorite, one of my top five favorite drawings, but probably number at least number two. We're starting in 1927 with Rang Tang.
1: This is Hirschfeld's very first drawing of a black performer, two black which just blew my mind. Two well, two black performers. And uh, that is amazing because he's been working uh, first in the film industry and then drawing theater since 1920. He had been drawing the theater for less than a year when this drawing appeared, but it took that long to get a black performer in a newspaper uh, drawn by Hirschfeld. Um, so Miller and Lyles, which have long fascinated us, uh, Ben, what can you tell us about them?
2: Sure. Well, Miller and Lyles are uh, probably most famous for the 1921 Black musical Shuffle Along, sure. which I think most people have, uh, are familiar with or have a passing familiarity, uh, which was instrumental in launching the myriad of black musicals that uh, came on the scene during the 1920s, um, instrumental in terms of the Harlem Renaissance, um, just an all around uh, momentous piece, shuffle along. Uh, And uh, Miller and Lyles were two of the four gentlemen that created that piece, the other two being uh, Noble Sissel and UB Blake. But uh, Miller and Lyles, fascinate me as well, I will say, because they, uh, in, in terms of the history of, of Black theater, Black musical theater specifically, there uh, is this overlooked period pre-Shuffle Along that is really completely forgotten. And this is essentially the very end of the 19th century. So late 1800s through around 1910. That's, I mean, that's where I, uh, personally, cut it off uh, for a number of reasons, but this basically, you know, ten, twelve years has a tremendous amount of activity. Burt Williams is working uh, in this period, and that's I think one name that that uh, people remember. Uh, now he was a that. black performer
1: who performed in blackface.
2: He did perform in blackface, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as did Miller and Lyles, actually. Oh wow! Um, and and of course, Burt Williams became. Uh, especially famous, uh, you know, he he was well-known prior to that for his partnership with George Walker, but he became especially well-known when he went into the Ziegfeld Follies. Sure. In uh, 1910. So uh, in this early period, it was primarily dominated by uh, uh, performers slash writers, and uh, four of them in particular. Ernest Hogan, who is... I think a name that we don't really remember today, or should I say most people don't really remember today, but was very instrumental in terms of the changing musical sounds, uh, both ragtime and then its counterpart at the time, coon songs, which was this um, period circa 1900, uh, this uh, group of songs called coon songs, um, which was, uh, came about and, and went hand in hand with ragtime.
1: Are, are those ethnic comedy songs like the Italian songs or the Jewish songs or the Dutch songs? Are we speaking uh, about that I, type
2: uh, of thing? In essence, yes, yeah. Um, I, do, I, I will say I'm not uh, familiar with the Italian or uh, I should say I'm not intimately familiar with the Italian uh, uh, to the extent the Jewish songs of the early um, 1900s. There are some kind of outrageous and in some cases delicious pieces yeah. <laughs> uh, by one of my favorite writers, I should say favorite writers, but uh, a little known writer that I'm fond of uh, named Will J. Harris, who actually played a Jewish character in this vaudeville unit out of Chicago.
1: Okay.
2: Um, so I'm tangentially familiar with those. So I, I don't, um, I, I i don't want to make a strict comparison because I'm not, uh, you know, uh, I don't have a, a firm grasp on the other ethnic songs. Um, but Kuhn songs, I would uh, imagine were similar to that um uh and then, of course, I think you know on top of that with the racial dynamics of of our country, there was an added sting uh in terms of what they were um, or, or ultimately what uh, they did as a as a byproduct because they were created coon songs um as you know comedy pieces for the music hall uh is my understanding and how they were talked about at the time and uh Widely. Is is this an
1: outgrowth of the minstrel show?
2: Not specifically, I would say. I mean, and I would say not a direct outgrowth, an outgrowth in the sense that it was an extension of that sound, you know, so it's uh, coming off of or coming with ragtime, which is an extension of plantation songs and minstrel songs. Um, But it did. They didn't directly result because of the minstrel show. Okay. Uh, But they they were intended to be these comedy pieces uh, which then uh, only went to further the narrative of black people's being black people being subhuman or these um, non-human caricatures of what you know watermelon chicken and and uh, so it was you know a very harsh and ultimately what became a demeaning stereotype Uh, that ended up persisting. So it's it's like double-edged sword where it it actually offered opportunity for Black writers because then you had people like Ernest Hogan, you had Bob Cole, um, to an extent, Williams and Walker, actually, writing coon songs, Gussie Davis. Uh, So there was opportunity, uh, you know, a door opened for them, but it was in this field where it was um, um, essentially uh, putting down their own character in something that was meant to be funny but then just you know ended up ter- you know being um, um uh, quite severe and, right. and harmful yeah. yeah exactly um but any case so this early period of black musical theater uh, uh bob cole was very prominent i refer to him as the father of black musical theater he and his uh partners the johnson brothers uh were actually you know incredibly successful writing musicals for white Broadway, as it were. Um, they wrote white, uh, several interpolations for white musicals. They actually wrote uh, a full white musical, uh, the score, I should say.
1: And the Johnson brothers wrote uh, Lift Every Voice.
2: Exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Rosamond Johnson and James Weldon Johnson. And uh, to, I mean, to tie this into something we're going to discuss later, I just found out that uh, Canada Lee, who, who is in uh, some of the drawings uh, to be discussed later, studied violin with Rosamond Johnson.
1: No kidding. Uh,
2: so that's sort of like a interesting uh, yeah. bridge, you know? Uh, but in any case, so, they, so this early period, Bob Cole, the Johnson brothers, uh, and uh, Williams and Walker. Ernest Hogan, who I mentioned earlier, um, not as well known as Williams and Walker. Um, his last show in this period is in 19, uh, or should say, comes about in 1907, and the book for that show is written by Miller and Lyles. Okay, so yeah. there is to sort of bring it back home. They're especially yeah. interesting because they bridge this gap between the first, this first rich era era of black musical theater, which ends around 1910. Uh, and then uh, the black musical stage is is not dormant, but it doesn't have uh, the prominence that it had uh, during the the early part. During the teens, it's, you know sort of um, uh, absent to an extent uh, while the sounds are changing offstage. Uh, and Miller and Lyles are sort of looked upon during that era as uh, based on writings that I've read, are looked upon as sort of the, the uh, folks who are going to lead us back into prominence, lead the black musical theater back into prominence. Um, there's a specific show that that they were referring, to, that critics and, and press and commentators were referring to, called Darkydom, uh, which was circa 1915, which didn't, you know, ultimately didn't land on Broadway and it didn't make any type of um, substantial mark. Uh, but you know, six years later, Miller and Lyle's would make a substantial mark with Shuffle Along. And then really be very present throughout the rest of the of the 1920s and into the early early thirties until um, uh, Aubrey lyell's death in thirty two
3: do you know anything uh, about Ring- oh. Can you tell us anything about Tang specifically or no
2: rang Tang yeah. specifically uh, it got a mixed of favorable reviews and seemed to be a sort of a a general black musical product of the 20s, um, which is to say, basically a review that, in some cases, had a thin thread of story. Uh, I think in in most of the cases with Miller and Lyles, they were playing the same characters that they generally played because this is right. they, you know, they like many artists at the time, uh, uh, they grew up in vaudeville, right. which is right. one of my favorite stage forms. It is not you know vaudeville is not a theatrical uh piece you know it's not a musical piece but it is a cousin of the stage essentially um and so they you know they they excelled in vaudeville um continued in vaudeville till the end of their you know run together uh and so i feel like the their stage shows were sort of extensions of that it seems it seems to me because they 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 uh, certainly they had the same names for i think either most or all of their pieces in the 20s in terms of character names right um uh so it, you know it's uh, i think of that variety um, well which and is, it's
1: true and it's true that most musicals of that period you know nobody revives those because the books are ridiculous you know right, the right, in yeah. thread mo- running through all of those i mean really, if at all Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it is until Showboat, same year, uh, uh, that we get uh, a libretto that's worth sort of doing again or making sense of.
0: I
2: would not make, personally, I wouldn't make, I wouldn't be as definitive as that. I mean, that's a simplification. Yeah. 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 Uh, But you know, in terms of black musicals, I think specifically there was not, uh They were of the review variety, and uh, most people um, expected and I think black artists fed into that expectation um, Most people expected basically hot jazz and dancing right. and so and and sort of broad comedy right. um and so I think they they for better or worse, I mean many wonderful things and wonderful artists came out of it. Um, but the shows also then were pigeonholed or put in this box, you know, and there's, um, it's not in this exact period, but the uh, a number of years later, Brooks, I'm gonna totally butcher this quote, but Brooks Atkinson, who is uh, a major New York Times critic, um, uh, talks about uh, how Negro intellectuals claim it's uh, white audiences That expect this standardized routine from black musicals, and then he points out that that's not, in fact, the case, or not in fact the entire case, because you have theaters in Harlem, uh, like the Lafayette uh, or the later the Apollo, which started doing tab reviews, uh, producing these shows, whereas he put it, you know, that wind up in the jungle with hot girls and uh, you know skinny Mm -hmm. skinny girls and hot costumes, dancing, hot routines, some variety of that. I'm I'm butchering the actual quote, but that's the, the sentiment of it. So, you know, it was it was not just white audiences demanding this or expecting that. I mean it was also uh, black artists delivering it and 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 writing it for themselves, you know, in, in many cases, when you look up at the especially the Donald Hayward shows up at the um, the Lafayette and, and the Apollo. Mm. So yeah,
1: right. um, yeah. I think
2: outside of black musicals, there was we. It's not often talked about, which is one of the things I'm uh, addressing in the book. But there there were actually uh, many many shows with strong, albeit primitive, librettos pre showboat. Um, one specifically being, I think one I would point to just right away are either the princess musicals sure. um, from mm-hmm. from fifteen to seventeen to eighteen. And then also, uh, what we we now would consider it an operetta, but really, it was basically a play, and it had this tinge of uh, Oscar Hammerstein's cynicism in it, which I find very interesting. Wow. again, you know the the actual text is is um, uh, more surface level than what we would get when we start getting into Hammerstein. But uh, the show is Maytime. Um, 1917 by Sigmund Romberg and Rita Johnson Young actually based on mm-hmm. a German musical comedy but um, so there did uh, anyway my point being that I, I in my view there did exist you know uh, strong oh yes libretto but, i mean but even those princess musicals
1: aren't aren't revived that much today
2: true true, yeah totally agree yeah. yeah yeah
1: you really when you get back to i mean the the i think the musical that get, the earliest musical that gets revived today would be showboat you very not, rarely... not to an
2: extent, but yeah, sure, to, yeah,
1: I mean, you know, by by a majority of companies, I'm not saying that nobody ever does anything before 1927, right? But, right. Uh, uh, I think that that really is the start of what what most people consider the American musical. Miller and Lyle's are the subject of this drawing. They were the stars of the show, but did white audiences sort of recognize Miller and Lyle as sort of this creative team? that, oh, it's a Miller and Lyles show, so it's going to be better or worse or uh, expect something of it because it was Miller and Lyles, or was that just, they were just black entertainers?
2: Hmm. I don't know if I have a direct question, I mean, a direct answer for that. I do think, based on what I've read, I do think there was an added element because it was Miller and Lyles. Because they had Shuffle Along behind them, right. so anytime that it's Miller and Lyles, these are the guys that created this wave of black, or, you know, created in the in the words of commentators, right? Uh, created this wave of black musicals. So and everyone's you know until Blackbirds of '28 comes along, everyone's comparing black musical theater to Shuffle Along. Right. So there is the Miller and Lyles element, I think, for sure. Um, uh. At the same time, though, I don't think it was like, you know, um, I'm trying to. Think. They
1: weren't like the Rodgers and Hammerstein. Oh, Eddie like-
2: Dowling's going to be starring in this, or yeah. Eddie Cantor's, you know, coming into Whoop, you know, Eddie Cantor's coming into town in Whoopi. You know, I, I, it, I don't think they attained that sort of, right, that level. Uh, but right. I do think there was the extra element of them having been the sort of originators of the 20s Black musicals with Shuffle Along.
1: And, and did, bla- did Black audiences come to Black musicals on Broadway in the 20s? Uh, to an extent, yes. Uh, I don't, I
2: don't, um, it, it is, uh, it's primarily white audiences.
1: Right, um, I, would, I would assume. But that.
2: I think to an extent, yes. And and to to Black plays as well, because I think, I know we're going to, just to address this later, but um, they did. I mean, to to what, you know, what percentage did they make up the, of the audience? I don't know right. the answer offhand. And I suspect it's very small. Right. Uh, but I and they, and, would, and they
1: would have been segregated. I mean, they would have had to,
2: well, I mean, technically no, because there was, I'm forgetting the exact year, but there was past, a municipal, was it a municipal law, a civic law, I forget the, the technical word, um, which prohibited um, segregation in theaters in New York. Yeah. This was like late 1800s, very end of really?
1: the 1800s. Did not know that.
2: However, to what extent that was enforced, I don't know, because there are actually episodic um, articles that I've read about Black patrons who there's one specific, I I cannot remember the show that he was going to see, but this is the early teens. So it would have been before this period, in fact, uh, when he bought a ticket, an orchestra seat, to a Broadway show, you know, totally fine. And then he shows up at the theater with his seat and they won't let him sit in the seat. They tell him either you have to leave the theater or sit in the balcony. So, which which was illegal. And then the gentleman had the theater manager arrested. Um, in that scenario. Uh, So technically they would not have been segregated to what extent that was enforced and how, what, you know, in actuality what happened, I don't, you know, that's I think probably a different story. Um,
1: Right, I just, I I wanted to get some sense of uh, how these musicals were viewed during that time and, and to some extent, Hirschfeld is, is, is sort of the uh, he, he's uh, raising the flag about how people would see them, you know, and, mm. uh, th- they were the important figures. So Miller and Lyles are drawn. Now, whether he got the assignment to draw Miller and Lyles or whether he got the assignment to draw Tang, we don't know. Um, right, right, I'm right. just curious as to what he chose and what was the world that he would he would have gone to see these shows. So what was right, the world right. that he he would have seen?
2: Well, also, I I don't. I, um, uh, uh, a question to you, and also, um, uh, on this particular topic, um, it's, I think, noteworthy as you point out that Miller and Lyles were his first African, was his first African American drawing. Mm-hmm. And then, this is a question which will also support the idea, I think, of their significance. I saw. Uh, it's not in the exhibit, but there's also a Hirschfeld drawing of Ethel Waters in Africana, which opened the same year. And she was a huge performer at that time. Uh, I should say, uh, you know, on the rise. Um, Right. And that actually opened the same, that opened, Africana actually opened a day before Rangtang, although the drawing came out a year later. But... um,
1: Right. And there's a lot of references in the reviews to each other's show. I mean, in Rangtang reviews, there's, they often mention Africana.
2: Mm-hmm, you
1: know, uh, just as you know the latest show, um, I find it interesting on the Hirschfeld end of things that, that in both of these, it, 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 there, the, in the drawing of uh, Ethel Waters in Africana and of course Miller and Lyles, he does a different style of drawing. A, a drawing that uh, is is you know is it, to me is very modern. It uses cubism uh, as a way of sort of showing their color. Without necessarily giving them black faces,
3: yeah, Um, and and I think he was. It's really only two drawings that he does that in.
1: Right, exactly. uh, There are elements that show up in other drawings like that, but these are the only drawings.
3: And it's like in a hat or something in other drawings. Right. And so, for him to do it, it's really. That's why we love the drawing so much. And I think that it's also.
1: Well, I think these, the way he does these drawings is a sign of the modernism in his work. Uh, he, was, he was sort of giving a nudge and a wink to uh, modernism in these drawings as much as he's giving a nod and a wink to Miller and Lyles. Is my feeling. What, I
2: have a, just a question. when, Based on what you just said, at what point did he move into uh ultimately the the and forgive me i'm not I, I i'm not of the art world so i can't use the proper terminology That's all right. uh, all right. but w- at what point did did it move from the uh the uh, Africana, Miller and Lyles, even the Swing in the Dream photo, which I know is not a drawing, which is not in the exhibit, right. into the, the more uh, linear, their line sort of the, which I think appears starts appearing in the 40s, if I'm recalling. Well, but-
1: no, he, he's working in line almost from the beginning, certainly with the theater work. Um, he plays around at the beginning using additional things, like in, the, in this Rangtang drawing, he accentuates the lines with charcoal, um, and that's something he plays around with. I think in part he's trying to see what newspaper reproduction can do. Um, but he's slowly taking out all the unnecessary elements of his drawings. But the decisive moment in his career comes in 32 in the island of Bali, where the sun is so bright it bleaches out all the color and all he sees are black and white line drawings walking around. And that's when his, as he said, his love affair with line started. And he was interested in image and pure line. He continues to do color work. He continues to routinely experiment with all different approaches. But what we consider the classic Hirschfeld style really synthesizes right around then. Um, and you know, he's a product of non-Western influences, much more. Uh, uh, you know, here is this very American artist whose influences were from the East. Uh, African art played as much of a role in in his development as uh, you know Japanese woodcuts and whatnot. He was this was not a man who came from the American illustration tradition. He much much different story. You know the man who introduces him to caricatures, uh, the Mexican artist Miguel Covarrubias. So he he brings all that to the work before you ever see any line of uh, you know the elements of the uh, of sort of white culture.
2: Interesting. All right. Um, one other. I, I just thought of. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just oh, just one other uh, mention. When you were asking about um, white audiences and and the influence of Miller and Lyles, there I haven't dug into it, so I'm I'm speaking only superficially at this moment. Um, we're good I at don't, that. Now. I don't... <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> um, there is reference to. Um, Amos and Andy picking up stuff from Miller and Lyles. Yes, so there's, I read that so too. There, there, yeah, so there is that connection, which I have not explored, so I can't really speak to what extent I, it was, but I did see reference to that.
1: I think in fact that um, uh, Miller eventually sues uh, uh, Amos and Andy over essentially oh, taking nice. their act. Uh, I don't know what the resolution of that was, right. but I think it's very telling that uh, Miller thought, "Wow, that's so close to what we did." You 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 probably took it from us. Um, so I think it gives us a, a sense of what their what their act might have been like. Right, you know, right, right. Uh, um, it, it, and it's just inc- you know because we listen to Amos and Andy today, and of course are appalled, but again, we're bringing twenty uh, first century. Uh, viewpoint to something that happened over a hundred years ago.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, All right. Well, let's close the door on Rang Tang. Unfortunately. Oh
1: my God. We could do a whole show on Rang Tang.
3: Yeah.
1: We might have just done a whole show on Rang Tang. I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the dramas that are in here. These these early dramas, uh, starting with the the Voodoo Macbeth. Um, you know, that's the Federal Theater Project. Who uh, you know to the government's uh, credit realized that there should be a, a, a Negro unit as much as there should be any other unit. Um, and this tw- you know this young man, twenty-year-old Orson Welles, convinces the powers that be that they should do a Macbeth with an all-black cast. And he simply replaces medieval Scotland with nineteenth-century uh, Haiti. Uh, and they really, the script is unabridged. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable production, uh, that becomes a hit. I mean, I don't think anybody imagined that, uh, but it becomes a hit and it tours the country. I think allowing, certainly it's the first time most audiences see black performers, uh, performing Shakespeare. Um, mm-hmm. But you know what an uh, unusual situation, and one of the stars of that show was a young actor by the name of Canada Lee, who you just mentioned before. Um, and the the drawings that we sort of grouped together uh, all have Canada Lee in them. It's Macbeth, uh, Native Son, and Anna Lucasta. Um, can you tell us anything about Canada Lee?
2: Uh, well, uh, I find him interesting uh deeply interesting just his career trajectory and actually uh it 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 is not dissimilar from uh which i think we're going to reference golden boy later but his initial career is not dissimilar from the odette's original golden boy in terms of violinist prize fighter right right because he did you know he originally studied violin which is so interesting uh, with rosamund johnson who we mentioned um, but, uh, I guess for me, what I, uh, what struck me about him and what I really appreciated was just the diversity of his activities. Um, yeah. it, it, I mean, literally, um, jockey, uh, fighter, uh, violinist he starts a band, he runs a nightclub.
3: Right, um, right.
2: Then, you know, he he uh, is out of money. So as you mentioned, the, the, you mentioned the Federal, Federal Theater Project. Um, so he, uh, you know, is in line at the Harlem YMCA uh, and stumbles into this Federal Theater Project rehearsal and then becomes, you know, uh, involved. Uh, right. uh, so it's, you know, it's just, um, it's an interesting career uh, and I think the projects that he chose uh, and or were offered um, yeah. are especially uh, interesting. I, I, one of the most fascinating discoveries about him was uh, his use of whiteface on Broadway. Yeah, so uh, tell me about that. In, uh, I'm, I, I'm going to, I think, mispronounce the title, but it's the Duchess of Malfi, Malfi, uh-huh. um, uh, Elizabethan drama, uh, or, or should I should say thriller, as it was yeah. described. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which, and which he was not supposed to do, actually. Uh, the, it, it was, I believe they were in Boston, I want to say, but they were out of town, and their lead actor left the show. Um now is this the federal better? theater
1: project or is not
2: it... federal theater, no okay. the commercial Broadway in the mid-40s. I think this was okay. circa 46. Yeah. Okay. Um uh but uh so they and the producer whose wife was the star of the show, uh they were looking for actors and then I cannot remember how they came across uh Canada Lee, uh, but they thought oh well you know he'd be great and we'll put him in white face um and wow. so he did this you know performance in in whiteface, which i mean is just um was obviously a, a, a controversial was controversial Yo, I bet. at the i time <laughs> um but i just in terms of what he chose to do i think is so exciting and interesting not just here but in throughout his career right um and you know and then i think off the off the success of this he then went to or, or wanted to do and it never materialized a um a shakespeare rep of othello and macbeth macbeth mm. being in white face and othello being in his natural wow um uh, which and, and that didn't materialize he did sure. do an othello that never came to new york but um But anyway, so I I just, I find it, you know, I find it fascinating. And then, you know, he was, he was in Vaudeville and had a- a, What I also,
1: what I find fascinating, yeah, he did all those things. And when he's on tour, he's visiting schools, you know, talking Hmm. about segregation and sort of racial equality. uh,
2: Politically active,
1: yeah. Politically active, but also community minded. You know, it's mm-hmm. not just, he wasn't just railing against, uh, you know, he wasn't just speaking truth to power. He was trying to educate a younger generation into yeah. what was going on. Uh, and he didn't have to do that. You know, uh, it would have been much easier in fact for him and he would have had more work because all this progressive sort of viewpoint got him blacklisted during the McCarthy era. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, um, you know, it, it would have been much smarter for him to sort of stay in his lane and act and run the restaurant and club and do all those things. And he probably would have worked steadily, but instead he, he's, he seems like he's always pushing the envelope. Uh,
2: I, I, yeah, I would agree with the, the pushing the envelope. And I think, I think that's one of the things that I find uh, fascinating about him or you know, really interesting about him because he's, he's doing things that you don't expect. Right, uh, and know.
1: completely forgotten today, it seems.
2: Oh, totally, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which is, again, just remarkable. I mean, he's in, I mean, the, the three shows that we show him in were huge hits. You know, well, I mean, they were, they were big hits. The Voodoo Macbeth was a big hit, right. uh, Native Son was Native a big Son. hit, and he toured with that as well. Uh, and then Anna, Anna LaCosta, LaCosta. Yeah, yeah, those. And then he was also in plays by Soroyan, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's got a really rich career that, unfortunately, sort of ends prematurely because he's blacklisted,
2: right? And also dies. Well, that I mean, because he, he
1: that's dies. always going to hurt your career.
2: That always, well, I don't know. <laughs> According to Cher, on her with David Letterman interview, she said sometimes death can be the best thing for your career. <laughs> right,
1: right. Dean, um, you know, has done very yeah, well James with it.
3: it. Yeah, that's a good example.
2: Right, right. Uh, not so much for a theater career, perhaps, but uh, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, no, so I mean, he, uh, he, uh, I think it was, I want to say 1952. It was early 50s. Mm. So, you know, he, uh, he, um, while he was still active, I think he was, it was at the time he was, there was, I want to say he was trying to get his Othello film made. And then something happened. It fell through, and and then he ended up dying. I, I want to say 1952. It's it sometime right. early 50s. Yeah. Right. But so right. his career, you know, he, he, his career ended. I wonder if um, it's interesting that you you're mentioning we don't remember him today. Um, but I think most people today, are, or or there's a general consciousness of Paul Rogsen,
1: of course, um,
2: who had a he's obviously started before uh, right, Canada and ha- but had a similarly interesting and, you know, and and uh, I think more robust career probably uh, sure. than Canada Lee. But then he was, I mean, even more severely um, oh. affected uh, by the McCarthy era and then disappeared for, I think, uh, at least a decade or a couple of right. decades. Um, right. Uh, but then we start to remember him in the 70s. And so now he, late 60s, 70s. And so now, I mean, so he's on our consciousness to an extent more.
1: Well, he lives longer and then he does, yeah. he does fight to get his passport back. Mm-hmm. And that keeps him in the eye and, and just a living longer helps, you know, if you can get right. past the blacklist and continue to work, that. you're going to have that ability for people to remember you. Um, yeah, whereas Kennedy didn't, didn't have that. Yeah. Um, uh, but speaking of Paul Robeson and speaking of Othello, as we do, uh, as we were, um, of course, we have that drawing in the, in the exhibition. Right. Paul Robeson, uh, Hirschfeld's only drawing of Robeson uh, in, the, in the title role uh, of Othello um, it, that appeared on Broadway in 1942. The longest running Shakespeare production ever presented on uh, Broadway. Uh, he, he, Margaret Webster was his director. Uh, Jose Ferrer was ya pioneer, fe-
2: pioneer female director
1: yeah pioneer well, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about her because i you know she's fascinating in their own way
2: i i i I have not done an extensive dive on her other than to um uh become familiar with her work um, coincidentally on on you know uh, i i it was just i want to say last week or the week before when I started to really look at her um, right before you had emailed me um and uh, I just find her very interesting. She uh, became well-known especially for directing Shakespeare plays. Sure. Um, yes. And so she directed, ironically or coincidentally, she directed Canada Lee in The Tempest on Broadway. Mm. This oh, was a couple that. years after The Ropes and Othello. Mm. Um, but a fascinating woman. And I guess why she popped onto my radar was because of her association with two other really uh, powerful Women of the theater, Eva Le Gallienne, oh, and sure. Cheryl Crawford. Oh yeah, um, yeah, and so the three of them were interconnected, especially throughout the '40s. Um, sure. And so you know, it's it's um, they're just you know they're three mammoth creatures, you know, and um, uh, Margaret Ropes, uh, Margaret Ropes, Mar- <laughs> Margaret Webster yeah. uh, be- being principally a director, Cheryl Crawford being principally a producer, and yeah. Eva LeGallien Gallienne being principally an actress, although the three of them, you know. Oh, did yeah, they all did all the roles. You know? Right. So um, it's, so I just find them very interesting. And they had, in the, in, it was a couple of years after the Ropes and Othello that they formed um, American Repertory Theater, which was led by, you know, this uh, repertory led by three women on Broadway. Right. Um, I mean, it was short-lived, but uh, still I think noteworthy just on its own, on its face, and then for the three women who are on their own, noteworthy, you know. Right. Um, So. Well,
1: Legallion had been noteworthy. I mean, she had her own company downtown uh, in the 20s. I mean, that may be the start of Off-Broadway, although I think the the production of Summer and Smoke in 1952 is generally considered the start of Off-Broadway, She's producing downtown in the in the mid twenties, uh, doing incredible productions that were very ahead of their time. Um, why she didn't use black actors, who knows? Uh, but what I find fascinating about this Othello drawing is you have four figures that are that just titans. You have Robson, of course, and we mm-hmm. talked about Webster, but you have Jose Ferrer, who is arguably the first Latinx uh, uh, superstar. You know, he had uh, been on Broadway for six or seven years at this point. He would go on to win a number of Tonys. He'd won, go and win Oscars. Uh, you know, he would end up be a producer and a director. Um, really a, a very, very important uh, figure. And then, you know, the Desdemona is Uta Hagen. You know, uh, a woman whose shadow uh, on American acting is is uh, looms large, uh, and it uh, is, when she kisses uh, Robeson in this production. It's the first interracial kiss on Broadway. I mean, so it's it's really, and she's just not at the start of her career, but she's early in it. So we're re- it's a real uh, uh, moment in time that is captured I- in this drawing, which. Uh, last year, I think it was last year, went up for auction and uh, sold for $68,000, over Um, $68,000 because everyone recognized that this is a real historic work. Indeed. Yeah. Um, So the next, go ahead.
2: To to the, to just, this is a backtrack, but on ropes and, and Othello and sort of the interracial element um uh i was interested to discover that uh he 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 had done othello in london in 1930 right um and specifically did not want to do it in america because of uh the reaction or the hostility that he felt it would have faced at that time um, right which i thought was interesting and of course he this is you know he this is this is after he's playing an interracial relationship in O'Neill's All Guts, uh, Chillin' Got Wings. Sure. Um, and there are you know, it's, it's just, uh, I guess for it just it speaks to the time is rather yeah. interesting. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think it's also telling that that is exactly what he's thinking about when after the national tour, City Center wants him to do, they wanna, they wanna bring the show into City Center, which is really just getting on its feet. Uh, and uh, he doesn't want to do it because he feels like I got good reviews the first time. I don't want to give him another shot at me. Uh, And it's LaGuardia who convinces him. It's his duty. It's civic duty to play this production for a $2 top ticket, which was a very cheap, cheap ticket at that time. And fortunately for all involved, critics still feel the exact same way about the production. And it's a big hit for city center. It's a big hit for Robeson and for everybody involved.